It is Christmas season, and we've sung a few songs, really, about honoring the Lord. And I understand that uh, Christmas can be brutal for you as an individual, uh, living life, uh, the challenges of life, uh, grief, heartache, disappointment, rejection, and it's hard to get fired up over Christmas. And uh, we kind of mentioned that just moments ago, that really Christmas is about Jesus coming to this planet, this planet that wasn't ready for him, this planet that really rejected him, didn't want him at that time, and he came anyway. Why? Because the great love of God wanted to send his son to model the character of God the Father, and he did that in a great way, ultimately going to the cross to pay for your sins and my sins so that we could have a relationship with the God who created us. That's something to get fired up over, you know? Because I, at being born into this planet like you, I was born with a sin nature, and sin will keep me out of the presence of a holy God in heaven itself. And because of the great love of God, he allowed his son that first Christmas to come, really vulnerable as a baby, growing to a man and ultimately being nailed to a cross, shedding his blood so that there would be forgiveness of sins. And it's, it's affirmed by the fact that one of the criminals hanging next to Jesus who was dying, one of the first words Jesus said when he was nailed to the cross was, Father, forgive them. And the criminal realized, hey, if Jesus could forgive those who nailed him to the cross, he can surely forgive me. And that's why he said, Jesus, remember me today. And Jesus didn't say, dude, it's too late. You know, you messed up so bad. You got to go through seven weeks of reformation, you know. You got to walk backwards for three days. No, no, no. It's nothing like that. Jesus said, today, you'll be with me in paradise. The great forgiveness of God was demonstrated on the cross, and it's demonstrated every single day, friends. Because that forgiveness of God is going out in the world even today. And this morning, we hope by the end of the day, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, like the criminal, you'll say, Jesus, remember me. I'm putting my trust in you. And you do that very thing because that's what heaven is all about. It's not for a week. It's not a two-week vacation. It is forever and ever. And so we, you know, yeah, life can be challenging. But the good news is that we spend eternity with God in heaven forever. Our sins forgiven. And that's what we celebrate. So, yeah. This morning you should have your outline and those watching online, you could pull it up on the Life Church Facebook and web page. Uh, there's a few Blakes there this morning. We are uh, in the process of walking through the book of Daniel. And I tell you what, man, I've, I'm enjoying it, um, how a book that happened 2,600 years ago is relevant for 2023, and it is. So Philip Yancey wrote the book, Disappointment with God, and he writes about why he did that. 
He said, when I wrote one of my first books, Where is God When It Hurts? I got letters from readers who said something like this. Thanks for your reflections on physical pain. My situation is different, though. My child has severe disabilities, and I face a constant battle with depression. Prayer doesn't seem to help my emotional pain. And when it comes to God, I feel something like betrayal. Phil goes on to say, I settled on three questions. Is God unfair? Is God silent? Is God hidden? And I think all of us at some point in time in our lives, maybe you're dealing with it today. You're asking one of those three questions. You feel like maybe God is checked out on your personal life. But uh, Phil goes on to say, I scour the Bible methodically looking for clues. He goes on to say, at the time, the publisher questioned the title so different from the cheery titles that predominate in Christian bookstores. But I wanted to speak to the people who were truly disappointed. Have you been disappointed in God? Yeah, there was a time in my life I was. And what I like about Phil Yancey is that it's the real deal. You know, it's not candy coated. It's not, uh, he doesn't water it down, you know, but he deals with real life issues and he puts it on the table. That's what I like about God. God is big enough to handle it. You read through the book of Psalms, David himself, a warrior, a king, a dude who struggled at times, and he was very transparent throughout that book, which gives you and I permission to do the very same thing. We could be honest with God and tell him exactly what we're going through, the questions, the doubts that we might have. And so Chuck Swindoll, who's been a pastor for a real long time, he's written many Books put it this way, few are better than Yancey at providing answers that can soothe a faith that's almost been shattered. And it's possible today that your faith has been shattered at some point in time. Maybe you're recovering from that. Maybe you're dealing with it initially. But I believe by the end of this morning, you'll be affirmed to the fact that God can rebuild that shattered faith as we bring our lives before him. So Phil Yancey tells a story that he was driving through the streets of Chicago one night. He had an appointment, a speaking engagement, and he said, my car broke down. And the sad story is it was winter and it was sleeting. It wasn't snowing, it was sleeting. They don't get snow in Chicago. (laughs) Why? Because they're closer to the equator than we are. No, they get snow. They do. Not as much as we do. So it was sleeting. And so Phil says, well, the thing I did, I get out of my car, flip up the hood, start checking the wires and uh, the cables and the tubes, and nothing seems to help. And he said over and over again while I was trying to get the car started, please, God, help me get this car started. Please, God. Please, God. And he said, as I'm praying, I'm getting wetter and wetter, the sleet beating on my back. And so he said, I spent the next hour in a local old diner, sitting on a plastic chair, waiting for the tow truck 
to bail me out. And he said, my clothes were so drenched, I was leaving a puddle of water on the floor around that plastic chair. And as I was sitting there, he said, I began to think, does God know that my car doesn't start? Does God know that I'm sopping wet sitting in this old diner? Does he really care? He knows that I had a speaking engagement. And so he's going through his mind over and over again. You know, God, what happened? I prayed. You didn't answer. Phil says, I feel ashamed even to mention such an unanswered prayer. It seems petty and selfish, maybe even stupid to pray for a car to start. But I found that petty disappointments tend to accumulate over time, undermining my faith with a lava flow of doubt. I start to wonder whether God cares about everyday details about me. I'm tempted to pray less because of it, often having concluded in advance that it's probably not going to matter anyway, or will it? My emotions, my faith, they waver. Can you identify with that? I think all of us can. God does care. God is there. And there are things in life that we don't have answers for. But when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will have the assurance when you get to heaven, you can ask God those personal questions that maybe won't get answered as long as you're living on this planet. 2,600 years ago in Jerusalem, let's go back in time on that time machine, People, the Jews, were pouring their hearts out before God. They were begging him to intervene because the Babylonian army, King Nebuchadnezzar, was camped outside the city walls. They were crying out to God, please God, rescue us. Keep the Babylonian army. And they had a brutal reputation, by the way, of how they treated humans. And they poured their hearts out. And as the army broke through the city gates, families were huddled in the corners of their homes praying, Rescue us, God! Rescue us. And as they're pouring their hearts out before God, the front doors to their homes are broken into. Soldiers take the teenage boys away from their parents, never to see them again. As these young men, let's just isolate Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, walking across the desert to Babylon. You can imagine them walking and kind of asking the question, God, why didn't you help us? You know, our families served you. We lived for you. We were faithful to you back in Jerusalem. Why did you let this happen? It doesn't seem fair. It seems like you've forgotten about it. It's kind of like Phil Yancey not getting his car started. And you kind of walk with these young men, teenagers. The next time a crisis they face, will they be more apt to back away and think, I don't think God is involved. I don't think God cares. I don't think God is going to make a difference. That's easy to happen, isn't it? When it seems like God's failed you, 
You wonder if God, you know, he's knocking on your door. He's asking you to trust him with this next step in this relationship with him. But he seemed to fail you last time. So what are you going to do? God said no yesterday, and you're hesitant to trust him today. Let's go to the book of Daniel chapter 3. And... um, Look at verse 7. So at the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, bowed to the ground and worshipped the God, gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But some of the astrologers went to the king and informed on the Jews. If you were in grade school, you'd say that was a tattletale. Right? Somebody tattled on you, man. You don't like people that do that. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, long live the king. You issued a decree requiring all the people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments. That decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. <laughs> they, they refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you have set up. Let's pray. Father, our Father, Abba Father, the God who created the universe, the heavens, the seas, everything else. Oh God, because you created us, we come to you this morning. And some of us, Lord, are asking you questions. We're doubting you because it seemed like we can't seem to get our car started. We've tried over and over again. We've asked you to help us, Lord, over and over. There doesn't seem to be an answer. And so because of that, Lord, our doubts begin to grow. We begin to wander. And so this morning we pray as we read your word, Lord, that you would give us clarity and courage to keep going, to keep moving in the direction with you, following after you. And I pray, for Lord, for those even this Christmas season that may be going through grief, um, pain, suffering, by the grace of God, that you would comfort them this morning and throughout this season. Lord, you are faithful. And you are good. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of you that are here for the first time, just a quick review. 2,600 years ago, back in time, when Daniel and his friends were exiled into Babylon, Babylon being the world power of the day, pagan, ungodly, brutal nation, Nebuchadnezzar being the king, you could say, of the world, because he controlled all world events as a human being outside of the hand of God. And we'll put a preface on that in a moment. But he had a dream, and it bugged him because he didn't know what it meant. And so he, he threatened his wise guys in 
Babylon to interpret it. And they kept saying, hey, tell us a dream and we'll interpret it. And he says, no, you tell me the dream and I'll and tell me the interpretation. Nobody could do it. So getting the death sentence, the doorbell rang and Daniel and his buddies, yeah, you, uh, we're going to come kill you because we don't seem to get an answer. God in his grace and mercy gave Daniel the interpretation of the dream, which r- really rescued these young men and the astrologers and the wise dudes team that supported Nebuchadnezzar. They rescued their lives. And 16 years passes going into chapter 3, and it seemed like there had been some spiritual movement in Nebuchadnezzar when God came through and gave that interpretation. But over time, nothing seemed to happen that Daniel said would happen. And like you and me, we think God, we put God on this timetable. We, we, we have a, uh, a daily candor. Okay, God's going to do this today, and tomorrow he's going to do this. And if he doesn't do it, we get, what, discouraged, disappointed. And over time, we question like Phil Yancey did, why doesn't my car start? So over time, Nebuchadnezzar drifts back to his arrogant self, full of pride, realizing, hey, this stuff didn't happen. It was probably misinterpreted. I'm still king. I'm still got my thumb on everything going on in the world. I'm cool. And so he builds a statue on the plain of Dura. And uh, that brings us up pretty much to where we are today. These three Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in highlighted in, in chapter 3, um, really were meeting one of their life's greatest tests, and that was, will I compromise? Because when you read through chapter 3, I'd like you to circle the word, word all. In the first several verses, that word all keeps popping up, and it means all, really, peer pressure. They all moved in the same direction. Because we know the word all means all, outside of the fact that there were three Jewish young men who stood instead of bowing. They stood against that peer pressure, against the current of the culture of the day. And that's where you and I come in, because we can see that even though um, these three young men who had been hijacked out of their families and transferred into an ungodly culture, 16 years later, they are still on go for God. And you would think, you know, they would become bitter and angry. You know, I want to go back to Jerusalem and we're stuck here in this pagan culture. I want to go back to the culture that I was familiar with. But no, instead, these three young men are thriving. They're flourishing spiritually. Not allowing, you know, the doubts that could have crept in and destroyed their faith. They let their roots grow deep into God's great love. And that was able to hold them through all the questions that they might have. Should they remain true to their core values, their convictions, their standing alone Or should they bow just like everybody else, just become one of the crowd? You're facing it. 
those of you in school, those of you at work, those of you in your homes daily, face that same question, will I bow to the culture, to the pressure that's being placed on me, or will I stand up for God and the truth that he represents? And so, number one, let the music begin, and we see the orchestra, man, they have been practicing for a long time. And just like puppets, just like a little chip in their bodies, boom, the button was pushed and everybody bowed down when the music started. Quite honestly, the music is being played in our culture today, friends, isn't it? The world wants you to crumble under the pressure to become just like everybody else. As men and women and young men and women today, we need to be encouraged and encourage each other to really ignore the music. The second song we sang this morning, Glory to God in the Highest, I listened to that this morning and I've been listening to it for the last month. You have to be intentional about what you're listening to. Because the music the world is playing is trying to play loud enough so you can't hear anything else. It is imperative that you choose intentionally what you listen to. And so in the midst of a world that's crumbling all around us, we raise our eyes to the sound of music from heaven and give praise to Almighty God, who is worthy. He is holy. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego purposed to do that very thing. So let the music begin. And the question is, will you bow down? Or will you stand up? Number two, but look at the three. What I like about this is Daniel's writing all. You know, he's using that word um, several times. But there seems to be a shift here. In verse 8, but some of the astrologers went to the king and formed on the Jews. Um, Verse 12, but there are some Jews Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods, and they do not worship the gold statue you have set up. I don't know about you, but I am so grateful for the three. Hmm? Is three the majority? No. No, it's quite the minority. If you could break it down into fractions, which I'm not going to try to do. I don't have my calculator here this morning. But you can say the odds are pretty much against you, right? Yeah. Three out of a million people? What was it, man, that gave them that resolute courage to stay standing? Look at the three. And we see that these astrologers that went to the king, hey, king, uh, I know you want everybody to bow. There's three dudes, man. They're Jews, and they are not bowing. And you made this decree. You see that furnace over there? Let's get that thing heated up, because these three dudes are going to go into it. 
We know that they sent up the drones to use facial recognition, and it came down, and yeah, it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's who it is. There are some Jews. The astrologers really tell a lie on the front end of verse 12b. They pay no attention to your majesty. That's not true. They paid attention to King Nebuchadnezzar. He gave them their jobs, and they, they honored him by fulfilling the job description that was given to them. They were good, faithful workers. But the second part, 12c, they refused to serve your gods and do not worship the statue you have set up. That's the true part. So they lied. No, the, the, initially, on the front end, these three men did know who Nebuchadnezzar was, and they honored him by obeying what was given to them for their job. But second, it's true that they refused to bow down. And so when you look at these men, courage doesn't need a crowd. It just needs conviction. It needs something in your core. Because it doesn't matter how many people are bowing down, the courage, the raw courage that you have because of God living in and through you, you see the work of God changing you and more into the image of himself. And that's the motivation to keep that courage rolling and not pull away. I hit this two weeks, three weeks ago, Psalm 119, 143. It's a verse you want to write down, put it on your refrigerator, because I think we can all identify with it as pressure and stress bear down on me. I find joy in your commands. I think somebody should write a song about that. Take that verse and put it to music. As pressure and stress bear down on me. I find joy in your commands. Pretty good, huh? Not bad for a foot off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that was where these three young men landed. The pressure, man, the stress was heavy. I want to be liked by everybody else, but my relationship with the Lord is what's most important. Remember August Landmesser going back to Germany in 1936 at a shipyard when, do you, do you see the drone zoomed in on him too, huh? He's the only dude, man, without his hand up. You know, Hitler was in the audience. What kind of courage was that? That's the kind of courage we need to have, friends to go against the pull of the current of the culture. Number three, my core is tested. Verse 12, my core, your core is being tested. There are some Jews, and he gives the names whom you have put in charge. They're having a conversation with Nebuchadnezzar. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you have set up. Here they are, three that stood tall when everybody else was bowing down. And 
I think back of the days when I was growing up, and I'm not going to date myself, but I think all of us who are adults can think back to growing up, and it was a different world then, and people seemed to have an understanding about who God was, what was good, what was bad, what was right, what was wrong. That was kind of a a foundation for a country, but that's all gone away. And so the adversity that you and I face today, it really is allowing us to realize how mature our faith is. It's being put to the test. And quite honestly, I think it is good. It's a positive thing that your faith, my faith is being tested. Because we find out exactly where we land when the music starts. And everybody around us is bowing down. And the question is, will I bow down? Or will I stand up? My core is tested just like these three. Faith means obeying God regardless of what our feelings are. The feely touchy, man. You know, so many people are driven by the gospel goosebumps. The gospel goosebumps. And if you don't get the goosebumps, then you think God has abandoned you. You can't live by your feelings or your circumstances around us or the consequences that you yourself are walking through. Because true faith is not threatened by threats or impressed by crowds. True faith, you know, it doesn't, oh, wow, wow. We're not impressed by that. True faith obeys the Lord. We honor him. No matter what the consequences are. And these three young men knew God's word. They knew the Torah. And so that's why they were resolute in how they lived their lives. Martin Niemöller was a well-known German hero during World War I. And during World War II, Niemöller again displayed bravery. Why? Because he spent time in prisons and concentration camps because of his firm opposition to Adolf Hitler. There was a spiritual core within Niemöller. And Hitler realized that because of the influence of Niemöller, if he could be persuaded to join Hitler's cause due to his popularity, that much of the opposition that the Nazi movement was experiencing would collapse. And so he sent a former friend of Niemöller's to visit him in prison, a friend who supported the Nazi movement. And seeing Niemöller in the prison cell, the friend asked, Martin, Martin, why are you here? In other words, if you bow down, you wouldn't be here. If you would do what everybody else is doing and not bow down to the music, you wouldn't be in this prison cell. And Nemola replied, my friend, my friend, why are you not here? It's a good question. Like these three young men, Niemöller's had convictions based on his understanding of God's word that would not allow him to bow down like everybody else. So the question is, friend, this morning, how, 
How firmly do you hold your convictions? Do you have core values? Are you willing to stand instead of bow down? Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. Number four, am I true blue? Am I true blue? We're drilling down here, and verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage. Uh, by the way, Nebuchadnezzar had an anger problem. Because <laughs> when you track a man, he, he always seems to be ticked off about something, you know, even though he's got his thumb on everything. So he ordered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be brought before him when they were brought in. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true? Is this just a rumor? Can we play the film back? There's some film here. Let's, let's put it up on the screen. Is it true what I heard that you guys are not bowing down? Is it true? That's a good question for all of us. Is it true? Is your faith under assault? Is your faith being undermined? You call yourself a Christian, but you really nobody knows about it. Is it true? Is it true? Is your faith true? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue. In case you misunderstood the directive. (laughs) Unless you lost the memo. Uh, We're going to give you one more chance here to bow down and worship the statue. I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, if you, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace, and then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? Pretty arrogant statement there by Nebuchadnezzar. What God will be able to rescue you from my power? Oh boy, that's, that's problematic. Um, you go back to Daniel 2.47, he said, Nebuchadnezzar said, your God is the greatest of gods, the, the Lord over kings. See, there, there was a softening here, uh, a, a humility that was creeping into Nebuchadnezzar. But now you see the arrogance in verse 15, chapter 3, what God will be able to rescue you from my power? And Nebuchadnezzar is claiming to be a God himself. You know, if he could, he would pat himself on the back. You ever try doing that? tough when nobody else is going to do it for you man it's tough so you think about these three young men again taken from their families their country into a pagan culture confronted by the most powerful man you're standing in front of him threatened with a blazing furnace off to the side Death unless they bow down to a statue. What would you do? What would you do? What would you do? What would I do? Well, the cool thing is that we know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego realized that they were true blue to God. Right? They were true blue to God. It doesn't matter doesn't matter what life throws at me. Is it true? Is it true? Are your convictions, you know, something that you just profess, but you really don't possess? You profess them, but it's your actions and your words don't line up. 
the professing and the possessing, for these three young men, man, they possessed it. It's what they live for, to honor the Lord. And we see this arrogant statement. He says, (laughs) what God will be able to rescue you from my power? Man, there's a lot of confidence in that statement. Mm. When you're in my hand, nobody's going to rescue you, buddy. That's where they're coming from. But you and I, because we have God's word, we can go back to chapter 1, 1 and 2 of Daniel, and we realize, oh, King Neb, you're not so cool after all. Because during the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, that's Israel, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Verse 2, here it is, the Lord gave him victory. You see it? You see it? Come on, talk to me. Yes or no? You see it? The Lord gave him victory. The Lord gave it to him. The Lord gave him. God gave the people of Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. God actively handed the people of Judah over to Nebuchadnezzar. God is not weak. Because God, because God didn't act on their behalf, Nebuchadnezzar figured this God that the Jews put their trust in seems pretty weak to me. A, my conviction, 16, verse 16 now we, we transition from the astrologers tattletaling on the three Jews to Nebuchadnezzar confronting the three Jews. Now we see the three Jews responding to the threat that Nebuchadnezzar made. The three replied, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. Hmm. You kind of get the camaraderie here. The three are like a mighty army because they've already had a discussion. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what goes on around us. We're going to stay true to God, right? Right, right. The three said, yeah, man, we voted. We're going to stay true to God. We're going to hold each other accountable. The God whom we serve, not the God I serve, the God we serve. He's not just... My God, he's our God. Friends, in this culture today, I just want to reiterate this again. It is imperative that you plug in to church consistently. Because we need each other. We need to say it's our God, not my God. I mean, my God is cool. But can you say the God whom we serve? A lot of people say my God, but is it the next step, which is the God whom we serve? Are you serving? Are you passionate about that relationship? And you wonder, these three young men coming up with a statement like that, their minds flash back to 16 years ago when they were, you know, and even before when they were taken out of Jerusalem. Where was God? Where was God? How could they stand up with that kind of confidence? The literal translation puts it this way. You will, it'll put a little more light on what's going on here. If our God whom we serve 
is able, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, then let him deliver us. But if not, be it known that we will not bow down to your gods. That's an interesting take because they're saying, if he's able, he will deliver us. But if he's not able, we are still not going to bow down. And this is an interesting statement because you start to question, you know, I'm okay with God not being able, but if he's willing, because if you, if you land on willing, it seems like he doesn't love you. See? Doesn't it? If he's not willing, because he loves me, he should be willing. Well, these guys don't see, it doesn't seem to matter if God is able or not. They still will not bow down. There's something cool going on here. There seems to be even a, a, a fragment of doubt. Even if our God doesn't, just like Phil Yancey, man, when he's outside trying to get his car started, see, those doubts love to creep in. But these three young men show us how to handle that. These three realized that God could deliver them from the crisis. And they were able to stand there and say these words because why? They're unshakable trust in Jesus. I just happen to have um, a hymn in front of me. And the ladies can sing it too. It is so sweet to trust in Jesus. Just to take him at his word. Just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus. How I trust him. How I proved him over and over. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. That's me. That's me. Lord, I need grace to trust you more. And I believe these three young men were singing this song, man. Before they went to bed every night, it is so sweet to trust in Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust him more. How about you, friend? How about you? My confidence be, verse 17b, he will rescue us from your power, your majesty. The three, you know, these guys aren't bubbling with enthusiasm. We get to go into the furnace. Woo! When I was a kid, I had nightmares about going into a furnace, and now I'm having dreams about it. I'm all excited. I'm excited to go into a burning furnace. Is that how they were? No. You know, they weren't sadists. I want to jump in there, man. Call it quits for the day. No, no, no. Um, they were filled with faith in God. That's where they landed. And they're saying even if he doesn't, leaves what's it do? What's it, it leaves the results to God. They're not saying God will, you know, guaranteed. 
Do you, do you catch that? Do you catch that out there? This is not a guarantee. Even if he doesn't, they're leaving the results to God. Friend, at the end of the day, God is God and we're not, and we have to leave the results to him. Listen, that'll take a lot of pressure off you and me. It's, you know, it's not this play this game with God, you know. God, if you do this for me, then I will do this for you. You ever do that? Hmm? I'll stop doing this if you promise to do this for me. But we should be able to say with these three, I can leave the results in your hands, oh God. It's a great place to leave it, right? Yeah, yeah. So, Dale Bruner tells about his cat. And I know there's a lot of cat lovers out here. We had this conversation last night around the table. And Dale Bruner named his cat Clement of Alexandria. And he had a, another cat named Archbishop Thomas Kramer. So these two cats used to hang around together, which shows Bruner, uh, he's into church history. For all your church history buffs, that's, yeah. Anyway, Archbishop uh, Cat, he, uh, he met the end with the jaws of a local coyote one day. And I know it's sad. Uh, and Clement was out there with him, and he saw the demise of his buddy. And so every time Clement goes outside, uh, he lives in terror, understandably, right? You see the fear on his eyes outside there? No, that's the coyote. <laughs> I don't see any fear in that dude. Um, yeah, well, anyway, there's a cat that's supposed to be outside. He'll come up in a moment. And so the cat's terrified. You know, you could just see the fear on his face. And But when he comes in the house, he lies on the floor between the kitchen and the dining room. And Bruner and his wife hang out there. And they said, man, Clement just falls asleep. He's just so comfortable. And this is what Bruner concludes. He says, my wife or I could squash Clement's head, but he trusts us. Our cat lives in complete total confidence in his human companions. In this connection, I think the best animal synonym for faith is what? Purring. 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 Every time I see Clement just lying there purring, I say to myself, that's what Jesus wants me to do, to trust him. The kind of confident trust the cat shows in us is the kind of trust the Lord Jesus invites from us. Should be a lot of purring going on around here. Huh? Yeah. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had complete trust in their God, no matter what. And Father, we thank you today that we can trust you Lord, we thank you that it is sweet to trust in Jesus and to take you at your word. Lord, will you help us to trust you more? You've proven yourself faithful over and over. And I ask this morning, Lord, that you will give us grace to trust you more. 
Those watching online and those in this auditorium today, Lord, will you, we know you know exactly what each of us is going through, the challenges, the frustrations, the doubts. May we, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, trust you, leave the results to you. Why? Because you're God. Will you help us do that, Lord? And maybe those that are struggling right now, will you just talk to the Lord right now? He's, he's able. Put it on the table and say, God, I'm struggling with this. This is why I've been wandering. This is why I have pulled away from you. You can go ahead and tell him. And to say, God, will you reignite that trust in me? again so that I can trust you more Lord we trust you and we ask for grace to trust you more what a privilege it is to live and serve you Lord in Jesus name Amen